Amos chapter 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to the wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over? That we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended. That we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonor scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your weeping into singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Bathsheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Thanks for that, Claire. Keep that open. We're actually going to consider the last two chapters of Amos this morning. As we do that, how about I pray? Gracious God, in Exodus 34, we read about you, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Father, this morning we pray that we might come to know you for who you truly are. We ask that you would reveal to us the God who abounds in love and yet who also punishes sin. Enable us to comprehend the one who is slow to anger and yet who does not let the guilty go unpunished. Lord, enable us to hold these apparently contradictory truths together so that we might know you for who you truly are and that we might worship you in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, in our house, we've uh, started a bit of a family tradition on Friday nights where it's family movie night. We don't do it every Friday, but we've started doing it. It's fun. We eat dinner in front of the TV. We watch a kid's movie. Um, But one of the challenges that we've been facing is actually finding a movie that the kids will watch. Because both of my kids, but particularly Eliana, gets quite scared very easily. On Friday, we watched Trolls. Now, if you've seen Trolls, you lucky people, uh, the, the premise of the story is that these, these little cute creatures with amazing fluorescent hair, they, they spread joy and happiness by singing. It's basically like a little kid's dance party, the whole movie. Ellie was terrified of the creatures that wanted to eat the trolls in order to be happy. You know, fair enough, it was a little bit scary. But as we watched this movie, we had to keep reminding Eliana that this is a kid's movie, it's going to have a happy ending. No one's going to get eaten. It was actually tempting, halfway through the movie, where she was not eating her dinner, instead she was burying her face in the couch, it was tempting just to skip straight to the end. To skip straight to the part where there was a fun fluorescent dance party and everyone was happy. We didn't. She got through it. She enjoyed it in the end. Now, the reason I bring this up is that sometimes we as Christians can be a bit like that with the gospel. Many Christians today like to skip straight ahead to the happy ending while skipping over how they got there. They believe in a Jesus that offers, offers life to the full. They rejoice at the freedom that Christ brings. They enjoy the God of love while completely ignoring how they got to those blessings. Ignoring the sin and judgment that has been dealt with. Ignoring the God of holiness and his righteous anger. Now, there's a big problem with doing that. If you ignore the problem of sin and judgment and you you just kind of want to skip ahead to the happy ending, well, Jesus just becomes an example, someone that, you know, you can look up to, a bit of a hero, but not a saviour. But even, even possibly bigger than that is that if you ignore God's judgment, you'll never actually turn to Jesus in repentance. If you ignore that sin is a problem, you will never run to the cross for forgiveness. Now, today we get to the very end of the story of Amos, the book of Amos, and Amos, believe it or not, is a story with a happy ending. It's been a long time coming. We've had six sermons in this series, and all of them have been about judgment, And today's actually no different, but after nine chapters of judgment, the very last five verses of this book speak of hope. Nine chapters of destruction, five verses of hope. But there's a danger for us that as we read this, we might stop and just skip straight to the happy ending and ignore the judgment. And if we miss God's judgment... God's salvation is meaningless to us. The thing I want us to see this morning is that God's judgment and God's salvation cannot be separated. You can't understand one without the other. 
You can't understand what it means to be saved unless you understand what it is that you've been saved from. And you will never truly turn to Christ for salvation until your heart has been gripped by the knowledge of his judgment that your sin deserves. And so today we're not actually skipping straight to the happy ending. We're having the sixth series, sixth sermon in our series about God's judgment. But then we're going to see also, hand in hand, God's salvation. Now, uh, you don't have a printed outline this morning, but the, the outline is fairly simple. We're going to see three things about God's judgment, three things about God's salvation. But we're beginning in chapter 8. And the first truth that we see is that God's judgment is certain. Now, the last three chapters of Amos uh, contain a total of five visions that Amos sees. Last week, we looked at the first three of these visions. There was the vision of locusts and fire. They showed us, they revealed God's restraint He was holding off judgment, not destroying the sinful nation of Israel. And then we saw the vision of a plumb line. And it showed how God was going to carefully divide the people and judge them according to his standard. Well, in chapter 8, verse 1, as Claire read for us, Amos gets another vision from God. And this time, God shows Amos a basket of summer fruit. Now, I love summer fruit. Summer fruit is the best fruit. And so if God showed me a basket full of mangoes, I would say this is a great vision. But this is not a great vision. This is actually a bit of a play on words. See, the Hebrew word for summer fruit is kaitz. And it sounds very, very similar to the Hebrew word kaitz. And that word means end. Amos sees a basket of summer fruit and with that God is saying, this is the end. If you've got an NIV, which Claire read, uh, it, it captures the meaning by translating the word as ripe. Amos sees a basket of ripe fruit and in verse 2 God says, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Now, the point of all this is to say that God's judgment is absolutely coming. God's patience has run out. There is now no escape. The sovereign Lord has spoken. God's people are ripe for judgment. And the harvest is about to come. First thing we learn about God's judgment is that it is certain. His patience will not last forever. The second thing we see is that God's judgment is terrifying. Have a look in verse 3 where we get the first glimpse of this horror. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. That's just eerie, isn't it? This carnage that happens, it's so gruesome that in verse 8, it's as if creation itself has to turn away 
in horror. Verse 8, have a look. Uh, Will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn. The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. You see, in the, in the face of God's judgment, everything is upheaved. The land that was once strong and constant turns into a, a sea that is tossed like water. The sun that once shone brightly is darkened in the middle of the day. Songs of joy become wailing. Celebration becomes mourning. When God's wrath at sin is revealed, there is a chaos of a most devastating kind. But you get to verse 11 of chapter 8 there and, and we see something that's even more terrifying. It doesn't appear terrifying at first, but have a look. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food and thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, And wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. Friends, the most terrifying thing about God's judgment on sin is that there will come a day when God withdraws from his people. Now, because of sin, there's always been... Well, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, there's been a separation between humans and God, right? When Adam and Eve first ate the fruit, they were sent out from the garden. They could not be in God's place anymore. They were banished. Sin had created a separation between God and man. But God was still there. God still acted on behalf of his people. He still spoke to his people. He still cared for his people. He still dwelt with his people. There was separation from God, but God was still there. Now, the curtain in the temple was the the perfect image of this, right? The temple was the place where God came to dwell with his people, but he was behind the curtain. There was a separation. People could not be in God's presence. Here in verse 11, we see, we see that go one step further. Because here God shows us that the day is coming when God will withdraw from his sinful people. It will be like a famine. People will long for God. People will search for God. They will stumble around desperate for his word. And they won't find him. God's judgment will result in people being hopelessly, desperately, bitterly alone and without God. God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is terrifying. Thirdly, God's judgment is inescapable. 
As we move into chapter 9, Amos sees the final vision of this book. This time God is in the temple. It says he is standing at the altar, the place where the people come to try and deal with the problem of sin. But God brings an end to it all. He says in, verse, uh, in chapter 9, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. It's a picture of God in the temple looking down on a people who are, who are claiming to worship him and God ends it all. He deals this crushing blow to the people who claim to belong to him and he makes one thing very clear in the verses that follow. Not one guilty person will escape his wrath. No one will get away, he says in verse 1. None will escape. What follows is is a long list of all the places that people might try to escape from God and not be able to. Because where can you go to escape from the God who created and owns everything? No underground mine is too deep. No mountain is too high. No cave is too dark. No ocean too immense. There is nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. Because there is no escaping the righteous Judgment of God. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom, God says in verse 8. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. God's judgment is certain, it is terrifying, it is inescapable. Now, that's the message that Amos brought to the people of Israel in chapters 8 and 9. But for God's people then, it was too late. The whole book of Amos has been a warning to them. But by the time we get to chapter 8, the the time was up. They've ignored the warnings for too long. They were ripe for judgment. And God's terrifying judgment was coming. And they would not escape. It was too late for them, but it's not too late for us. You see, the reason God sent Amos to Israel in the first place was to warn them. But the reason that Amos's words have been preserved for almost two and a half thousand years, and the reason that we've spent the last six weeks reading them, is that these words are here for us. So often we we get to parts of the Bible that speak about God's judgment and we act as if it's actually not a word for us on this side of the cross. Friends, make no mistake, these words are here as a warning for us. Now, if there is no coming judgment, well, go home. Just go go enjoy yourselves. Live for yourself. If sin isn't a problem, if God doesn't care about it, why should we? No one left the building, good. Friends, the message for us this morning is that the day is coming. 
Amos has said it again and again. In that day, in that day, in that day. The day is coming when God will judge sin. The day is coming when the guilty will be punished. And God wants to make sure that we understand that. And he particularly wants you to understand that if you're someone who calls yourself a Christian. One of the most striking things, I think, about the book of Amos is that almost all of it is directed towards God's people. Religious people. People who were keeping the Sabbath and who were obeying all the the laws, who were going to the religious ceremonies. Amos spends just over a chapter right at the beginning addressing the people out there, speaking to, to the nations and saying how God will judge those sinners. But then the rest of the book is aimed squarely at God's people. It's a, it's a message to the church, so to speak. Friends, Amos is a warning to people like us. Because you see, it's really easy for us to sit here on this side of the cross and then casually ignore the God, what God has to say about sin. We know Jesus offers forgiveness. Don't hear me denying that. We know Jesus died so that we don't have to. We know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Don't hear me denying any of those gospel truths. But but understand, that kind of thinking is exactly how the people in Amos' day thought. They thought they were safe. They were God's people. They were the ones that he had redeemed out of slavery. In the same way that we might point to the cross, the Israelites pointed to the Exodus as a sign of God's favour. They said, we've been saved by God. And so they were rightly looking to a historical event as a marker of their identity. It was right that they would look back to the Exodus to see what God had done for them. But there was a problem They hadn't let that event change them. They were looking back at the Exodus going, yes, we're God's people. But then they refused to live as God's people. God had redeemed them out of slavery, but they were still very much enslaved to their greed and to money. God had liberated them from injustice, but then they were cruel and heartless to each other. Like furniture from Ikea, Israel had a thin veneer of religion, but inside they were junk. Their hearts were far from God, and so judgment came. Friends, heed the warning. It's right for us to look back at the cross as the basis of our hope. Keep doing that. Keep looking to the cross to see what Christ has done for you. It is right to look to the cross, but only if you will die with Christ too. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who goes to church 
will be spared God's judgment. Not everyone who believes that Jesus died will benefit from that. Not everyone who claims Christ even belongs to him. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, says Jesus. So friends, don't ignore the warning about judgment. Too many Christians see God's mercy and think that therefore God doesn't care about sin. Please don't fall into that trap. Take notice of God's certain, terrifying and inescapable judgment. Because it is only when we actually appreciate God's judgment that we can ever truly appreciate God's grace. And so as we come to the end of the book of Amos, we get a glimpse of that grace. We've got nine chapters of judgment, but Amos finishes with five verses of hope. Have a look down from verse 11 in chapter 9. It's just as certain as it is that the day is coming when God's judgment will be revealed and exile would be conquered. Uh, sorry, and Israel would be conquered and sent into exile. Just as certain as that day is coming, the day is also coming when God's people will be restored. In these two chapters, again and again, we've seen that line, in that day, in that day, in that day. In that day, the songs will become wailing. In that day, the sun will go down at noon. In that day, I will send a famine through the land. In that day, the young women and young men will faint because of thirst. But in verse 11 of chapter 9, God adds one more. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. The day is coming when God will judge his sinful people, but the day is also coming when God will restore. Now here in verse 11, he speaks of restoring the fallen shelter of David. Your Bible might say that the tent of David or the booth. Now that's an unusual phrase because in 2 Samuel, God tells David that he's going to build him a house. He's going to establish a kingdom, not a physical house, a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a house that would stand forever. But in Amos's day, that, that once great house of David, well, it had become a dilapidated shack. David's kingdom had been divided. The king who was currently on the throne was terrible. God's promises looked lost. But here God promises to rebuild this fallen house, to repair the broken walls, to restore the ruins. And he guarantees it. He says, the Lord will do these things. God's judgment is certain, but God's restoration is just as certain. When judgment came upon God's people, it was terrifying When salvation comes, it is anything but. It's beautiful. Do you you see the pictures that we have here? The days are coming, declares the Lord in verse 13, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman 
and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. You see, when God rescues his people, it will be so good. It's like the Garden of Eden all over again. Crops will thrive. Harvests will be abundant. God's people will not lack anything. Not only will they have all the food that they need, they could ever, all the food they could ever possibly eat, they'll also be secure. When God brings the people back from exile in verse 14, he says they will rebuild the ruined cities and they live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land never again to be removed, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Friends, God's salvation is certain. God's salvation is beautiful. And finally, God's salvation is all-encompassing. Oh, two behind. You see, when God promised to restore David's fallen kingdom in verse 11, he adds something interesting in verse 12. He says, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair the broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. God's plan for his restored people is that they might possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear God's name. Now, what is God talking about here? Edom were were the descendants of Esau. They were longtime enemies of God's people. But here God is speaking of Israel possessing Edom. But but not all of Edom, a, a remnant And you'll notice in the Bible, a remnant is is always a way of speaking of of a small group of people that God has chosen to belong to him. And so what God is saying here is not so much that Israel is going to conquer Edom and and defeat it. No, God is going to have it so that even people from Edom are going to become God's people. The the remnant of Edom will will be God's Possession, And so will not just Edom, but all the nations that bear God's name. What we have here is the promise of a day when people from all nations can belong to God. When salvation would extend not just to Jews, but to the ends of the earth. Now, Israel did not see that when they returned from exile. Now, God did restore them from exile. They did rebuild the ruined cities. They did plant vineyards and drink their wine. But things never quite looked like this. And so throughout generations and generations of Israelite history, they looked forward to the day when God would bring about this great restoration. And then one day, 
God fulfilled these words of Amos. The day came when the man from the house and line of David was crowned king of the Jews. But instead of wearing a crown of gold, he wore a crown of thorns. And as they lifted him up on the cross, the earth shook and the sun was dark in the middle of the day. Because, friends, it was as the wrath of God against sin was revealed that God's salvation came to. You see, it was, it was in God's act of judgment upon sin that restoration became possible. Jesus dying on the cross is the point at which God's judgment and God's salvation meet. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took God's certain, terrifying and inescapable judgment. He died for our sin. But then by rising again, he came to offer you restoration. He extends that offer not just to Jews, but to all the nations of the earth so that we might sit here today and call ourselves God's people. He holds out to you the hope of a life of abundance and blessing in the new creation. He welcomes you, no matter who you are, to enjoy the certain and beautiful and all-encompassing salvation of Christ. Friends, don't ignore God's judgment. If you're, a, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, it is right for you to say there is now no condemnation. Have that assurance, but don't ever forget the judgment that you have been spared. Because the moment that you think that sin is not a problem and that judgment is not something that you have been spared, well, your saviour becomes, becomes nothing to you and you will never cling to him. Friends, the day is coming when judgment, final judgment, when Jesus the judge returns and will hold everyone to account for sin. The day is coming when God's salvation will be received in full. The day is coming. Are you ready for it? Let me pray. Gracious God, we praise you for who you are this morning, the God who is holy and righteous, who cannot tolerate sin and who has promised to deal with it. We praise you this morning yet you are, that you are the one who will hold the guilty to account. We praise you this morning that you do indeed judge But we praise you most of all this morning that you, in your love, were willing to send Jesus to bear that judgment for us. Please, Father, don't let us leave this place ignoring your judgment or forgetting about this judgment that we have been spared. Don't let us think that sin is not a problem. Grip us with this news of your judgment 
of this judgment that is certain and terrifying and inescapable. But Lord, then overwhelm us with joy at knowing that Jesus stepped in to bear it for us. And that by dying and then rising again, he offers us a certain, beautiful and all-encompassing salvation. Lord, help us to hold these elements of your character together. Help us to worship you for who you truly are. Help us to rejoice at the day that is coming when Christ the judge will return, but when we, his people, will go to be with him forever. Lord, we long for that day. Make us ready for it, we pray. Amen.